I guess that's a bit of an insult to me. I'm not sure. I'll just assume there's ice cream or something down there. Ah, that's it. They're excited about the book. We don't care about him. We just want the book. Uh, there was a couple in Minnesota, and it was in winter. It's Minnesota. And uh, they thought they needed to go to Florida, you know, get a little sunshine and just a break. So they arranged for a trip to Florida, but um, the, the way their work schedules worked, they couldn't quite go the same day. So the husband was going to go down one day, and the wife was going to join him the next. And, and when he got down to the hotel in Florida, uh, as he went into the lobby, there were computers for guests to use. And so he thought he'd send his wife back an email. So he types her an email and sends it off. Uh, meanwhile, there was a recent widow, very recent, uh, in Texas. She had just got home from the funeral, in fact. And uh, as he sent the email to her, you know, he transposed a few numbers and mixed up a few letters, and lo and behold, sent her the email. So she walks in the door, and the computer pings to let her know there's an email. She goes over and looks at it, and there in the subject line it says, Surprise! Greetings from your husband! from you know where. So she opened it. And this is what she read. After a long and eventful trip, I finally arrived. They now have computers in the lobby so you can contact your loved ones. <laughs> it's just like we thought it would be. All is set for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> P.S. It sure is hot down here. <laughs> now, I only tell you that because there's a real no connection at all to what I'm going to say. Uh, it's just a funny story, but I do tell you that because it's going to get very hot in here very quickly uh, because, as uh, your pastor mentioned in talking about a subject, it's of a little controversy. There are people who think uh, very strongly uh, about this topic. And some folks think there is a lot on the line when it comes to this topic. There's a lot at stake that the future or the present and the future of America as a nation has a lot to do with her past. And so there's a lot of uh, weight put on this question of a Christian American past. On the other side, as your pastor mentioned, there are those who want to say, no, uh, it, was, uh, it was all sort of re rewritten into the history. This was uh, not. In fact, there's a, a book out titled The Godless Constitution to argue that it was a purely secular state that uh, the founders were an architect of. So we're wading into waters here that are a little controversial. And I will try to wade through them graciously with you and carefully uh, through them with you, but also point out a few things as we go. And also sort of stop at the end and, and take a step back and say, well, what are the real considerations here? As we look at this question of interpreting the past, what are the real considerations for us in the present moment and as we look ahead? And especially for us as a church in terms of what does it mean for us as a church as we interact with our culture, as we interact with our country? So that's the, the uh, order of the, of the evening. And now that your pastor's gone, I can tell you how grateful I am for him. Uh, and I don't want it to go to his head, you know, while he's here. But I am very grateful to your pastor, and I've enjoyed the friendship that, that we have, uh, have. I think this is my third 
visits back to you folks. I look forward to this. So does my son, because afterwards I take him to the Chinese buffet as a reward. So he's very much looking forward to this. But, uh, but uh, this is always a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure to get to know your pastor. And I appreciate you sharing him with us at the college. He's going to teach again for us this fall. And he's going to teach a very important course. It's our, it's our introductory theology course to our freshmen. And uh, to me, you know, sometimes at colleges, people think of the senior level courses as the most important courses, those sort of capstone courses. But to me, it's those freshman courses that are really the most important. And as I, uh, de- as a department chair, look for people to teach those freshman courses, uh, I put a lot of stock in getting the right person for those classes. So I'm very grateful to you to uh, loan us at the college, your pastor, for the fall uh, We'll be gentle with him. We won't overwork him. We'll get him back to you healthy, safe, and sound. Did you, you all got a handout, I take it? Uh, so there's a, you should have a two-sided handout, and we'll talk about the letter on the back uh, as we move down the outline a little bit. But just for some clarification, and just to start us off, I thought we'd ask the question, which founders are we talking about here? Because there are really two sets of founders. And sometimes I think that in our heads, we tend to draw a straight line from the Puritan settlement and what were the ideals and the behaviors of the Puritan settlers, we draw a straight line from that right on to the era of the early republic and the revolutionary era and the founding era of the republic. And the reality is there are four generations that intervene between that Puritan settlement and the revolution. A lot can happen and four generations. You know that to be true. The other reality is that the Puritans were not the only ones here. In fact, they weren't even the first ones here. So I want to look at that under 1.1 by looking at the different settlement founders, then some of that intervening era between the settlement and the revolution, so that we have, I think, a clearer understanding, or perhaps maybe a better understanding of the actual context of the revolution. So first, the settlement. Well, I'll mention the Puritans first because, after all, they're the ones that we we like to focus on. And we're talking, of course, about the New England Puritans. And we have two primary areas of settlement. Uh, You've got 1620, the Mayflower folks. And uh, they land on Plymouth Rock, and that forms Plymouth Colony. Now, technically, they're the pilgrims, but they are of that Puritan world. Uh, Just to sort of back up, of course, we're talking about the Old England Puritans that came into existence, they were essentially legislated into existence by Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth wrote what were called the conformity laws that required conformity to the Church of England, the state church. And this group didn't quite see that as the best route to go. And so they were initially called non-conformists, or they were also called separatists. And on the street, as a term of derision, as a term to to, uh, put them down, they were called Puritans. So they come into existence uh, shortly after Elizabeth comes to power. So um, there in the the, uh, um, late 1560s, the Puritans are legislated into existence. They survive under Elizabeth, but under James, various laws that James enacts sort of turn the heat up on the Puritans. And one of them is the Book of Sports. Now this, to me, is one of my favorite texts in all of history. Uh, James was worried that the English youth were were lazy. 
and he wrote legislation called the Book of Sports that required sports activity. It's sort of like, remember uh, the president's physical fitness badge you had to do? I remember that in junior high. And if you were, if you were really like a, a macho guy, you would do the rope without the knots, you know, which you, you can get up. That's not the hard part. The, the, the hard part is getting down. And I remember like suspended from this, this one, my, those junior high moments that you just wake up with night sweats, as you remember, waiting for the Marines maybe to come in and airlift me out of there as I was hovering at the top, wondering how in the world I'd ever get down. I think I just sort of let go and lost all of the skin on my hands. But anyway, James did this, and then this is what he did. He required that the book of sports be read from pulpits to be propagated among the people. And the Puritans refused to do this because of their view of the Sabbath. So under James, a number of them just felt uncomfortable with this. And they initially went to the Netherlands, but they didn't like that either because they weren't sure those wooden shoes would be healthy for their kids' feet. You know, they might do something to their toes. So they end up petitioning James for land in the New World. And actually, they petitioned for land. This, this uh, geography was very simple back then. They asked for land in the northern parts of Virginia. So you had, you had Virginia... And then you had the northern parts of Virginia. That was essentially American geography. So Boston is the northern parts of Virginia. Right? So that's the Mayflower folks, and they land in 1620. Then in 1630 comes John Winthrop and the Puritans on the Arbella. And that's the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And th that's the group, when we think of the Puritans, that's the group. And it's John Winthrop who, while he was on the Arbella, gives the sermon a model of Christian charity. And in that sermon, he says, For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. Now, those words, of course, are from Christ, from the Gospels. But Winthrop uses them in his uh, model of Christian charity speech on board the Arbella as they're off the coast before they even land. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story. Now, uh, that's sort of like, um, you know, not just a story. Think of like a, um, a, a tabloid story is what he means by that. We shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all the professors for God's sake. So the city upon a hill, Winthrop took as a Puritan obligation to be a godly community in the new world. Didn't take it as a um, place of privilege. It was really a place of obligation and an understanding of obligation. But it shows us some insight into what we call the Puritan experiment, or what the Puritans were about. They were about being a city upon a hill that followed a biblical ethic in their social life. So these are the Puritans. Now, after James II, of course, comes Charles, or after James I, rather, King James, comes Charles II. And, uh, or Charles I, I'm sorry. And Charles I 
was a very incompetent king, plunges England into civil war. If you remember hearing of the British Civil War in the 1640s, it was a result of Charles. And he was an incompetent ruler, and he was also a closet Roman Catholic, and turned the heat up on the Puritans, so that from 1630 to 1640, wave after wave of Puritans came to the settlements. By the mid-1630s, every week, a boat is arriving on New England shores, depositing a whole other wave of Puritan settlers. So they come in 1630. They come in droves in the 1630s. We should be playing Neil Diamond. They're coming to America in the background, just as sort of mood music for this. So those are the Puritans. But the Puritans weren't the only ones, and they weren't the first. Uh, before the Puritans, actually, were the Roman Catholics. And they came in two ways. Uh, the French Roman Catholics came up through, uh, above through Canada and then down through the St. Lawrence and, and were mostly trading. And they had uh, possession and control of the western frontier, which, of course, the western frontier was Pittsburgh and uh, Fort Duquesne, right? Uh, renamed for William Pitt and then becomes Pittsburgh. And the French and Indian War, which is going to come in the 1760s. But they're here long before that. And it's not just French business that comes along and French trappers. They bring with them Jesuit missionaries. And uh, the Jesuits were actually very successful among the Native Americans, far more successful than the Puritans were. And part of it had to do with the icons that, that Catholics used. And in fact, there was a lot of syncretism between the Jesuits and the Native Americans. So what they would do is take the, let the Native Americans keep their totem pole, but on top of the totem pole they would put a crucifix. Okay. So they were very successful, whereas the Puritans wouldn't go for that at all. And the Puritans, of course, were not into icons. They, they didn't even stomach uh, pictures of Christ. They, they were the ones with clear glass in their windows. They didn't have the stained glass windows. And so they were all about the printed word. In order to have printed word, you had to know the language, and all that takes time. See? So the Puritans were not nearly as successful as the Jesuits were, but you have to ask yourself, what were the Jesuits really successful at? But they made a strong foothold. The other place where the Catholics come, of course, is through Florida, discovered in 1513. Actually, we could even back this up to Columbus. You know, when Columbus discovered America, uh, one of the things he talked about was, this is now the beginning of the kingdom of God, is what Columbus was talking about. But in Columbus's sense of things, the kingdom of God was felt in a substantive form in the Spanish kingdom. So when he's talking about language of the kingdom of God, He's talking about Spain as the primary purveyor of that kingdom of God. But that uh, spirit, as it were, lived on. And so one of the early settlements in Florida, long before uh, the Mayflower, is St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, as they say in Florida. Uh, St. Augustine, as my church history professor says, St. Augustine is in heaven, St. Augustine is in Florida. So here you have St. Augustine as a Catholic settlement. The other place the Catholics come a little bit later, those French Catholics up in Canada, it was too cold up there. So they kept going down. They couldn't land in Florida because the Spanish Catholics had control of that. So they come in the Gulf Coast and at New Orleans. And then they come up the Mississippi. So they're coming down the Mississippi and up the Mississippi, French Catholics. And of course, the Spanish Catholics go up the California Peninsula. And we forget about that too sometimes. And the formation of the missions, right? One of them being Los Angeles, of course. But 14 missions were established up the California Peninsula. So there were the Roman Catholic settlements. 
And then, of course, there are the Anglicans with Jamestown in 1607, but more than just Jamestown, the settlement of the other southern colonies, the Carolinas and Georgia. Of course, Florida's belonging to the Catholics and the Indians and the Alligators um, and the Pink Flamingos, but uh, the, the, middle, the southern colonies are up for grabs. And so Virginia, Georgia, the Carolinas all become Anglican settlements. While Jamestown had clearly a religious emphasis, though, it was essentially an economic enterprise. It was the Puritan settlement that was specifically a religious enterprise. Remember Winthrop's statement, city upon a hill. And there were others, too. And a lot of the others came to our beloved colony, Pennsylvania, thanks to William Penn setting it up as a haven for uh, the religions that couldn't find a home anywhere else. And so into New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Delaware, of course, come the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, and some of the Scotch-Irish made their way down also into the Carolinas. Uh, Of course, the Quakers not finding a home in any of the other colonies uh, found a home here. The German Lutherans found a home here in Pennsylvania. And then the last colony is uh, New York, and uh, New York was where all the Dutch Reformed Calvinists uh, went. And uh, in fact, one of the oldest contiguous churches that, that has been what it was in its founding is a Dutch Reformed church in uh, New York, which uh, was, um, I think, dates back to, I want to say the 1630s. So the oldest contiguous church is actually a Dutch Reformed church in New York. So, so you have that, see that map in your head? And what you essentially did was you took all of Europe and you just transplanted it to the New World. So you've got the New England Puritans from England, of course. You've got uh, in New York, you've got the Dutch Reformed from the Dutch country. You've got in the middle colony, the Presbyterians from England, Scotch-Irish. And you've also got the German Lutherans. And then you also have later coming the Anabaptists. Uh, So you have the mixed bag of Pennsylvania. And then in the south, you have Anglicanism, with the two exceptions being Maryland, Mary's Land, uh, the Catholic colony, and Florida. So there is a little more religious diversity than I think sometimes we think when we think of these settlements. It wasn't just the Puritans. The other thing to mention is that time intervenes between the founding and the fathers. And so like I said, we've got about four generations here. And a lot can happen in four generations. And just as we look at the Puritans, some things do happen there. And unfortunately, for large part, the wheels sort of fall off the wagon of that Puritan experiment that John Winthrop set up. That the Puritans began to sort of lose interest in the things of the Lord as their main focus. And as they gained some stability and prosperity, those things of stability and prosperity uh, began to be their focus. Deism comes ashore. Uh, if we go back to Old England, in 1720, in Old England, these Puritans, right, who all were martyred under uh, Bloody Mary in the 1550s, these Puritans who gave their life for their faith, in 1720, they're voting on the deity of Christ, and the deity of Christ loses the vote. Right? 1720, liberalism, liberal theology, had overtaken this group of Puritans. That same deism that overtook them began coming to uh, the Puritans in New England. By 1810, 1820, 
many of those Puritan congregations became Unitarian and Universalist. Right? And today, a lot of those old Puritan congregations are part of the UCC. A lot of them are part of the UCC. And so you go visit these old, you know, the, the churches of Edwards. They're, they're not the same building. They've burned it's five or six buildings since his. But there's no gospel there. They're, they're just liberal churches. Well, that was actually starting in Edwards' day. And in Edwards' own day, in the 1730s, 40s, 50s, as he's a pastor, he's warning that this deism that is coming in is going to overtake um, the churches. So, so their, their interest in being the city upon a hill as the godly country for society, behaving biblically for society, is waning. And their interest in economic prosperity and stability and establishment and all of those sort of worldly distractions that the Puritans were so careful to guard against, all of that was waxing. Meanwhile, there is theological drift with deism coming ashore. So now you have a recipe for the demise of what once was that sort of Puritan stronghold. And a lot of the founders are going to come out of this era, of, uh, of this place of New England. The, the architects of it all. Franklin's a Philadelphia man, but his roots are Puritan New England. Uh, John Adams, who is one of the significant intellectual architects of the founders, is right out of this Puritan world. And we're going to see his uh, views on, on uh, religion in, in a little bit. And then, of course, Sam Adams and, the, and some of the more fiery sort of revolutionary figures all come out of this. But they're coming out of a New England that is still a Puritan New England, but it's, but it's not the Puritan New England of the 1600s. And it's not even the Puritan New England of, of Jonathan Edwards. Well, all that's just a bit of a context. And uh, so the, the colonial developments, as I said, they're, the religious interests are waning, the uh, economic prosperity, those types of things are waxing, and deism is encroaching. The other thing that all this is going to lead to is a strong sense of national identity. And one of the things that's going to cause that, of course, is the, is the, the French and Indian War. It's what I called it growing up. Now it's called the Seven Years' War or the War for Empire. But the French and Indian War is going to bring the colonies together. It's also going to increase uh, the, the tension because at the end of that war, England is going to want to be paid for its investment in protecting the people of the colonies. And how England wants to get paid, of course, is by taxing. And it's those heavy taxes in the early 1770s to pay for the Seven Years' War from 1757-58 into the mid-1760s. It's those taxes that's going to be the, the issue that's going to ignite the revolution. But it's not just the taxes. It's also a sense of an American identity. And so why should we be governed by King George way across the sea? Right. So some of those developments are going to lend themselves to, this, to the revolutionary um, sensibility, the desire for a revolution. So all that sort of context. As we move into the Founding Fathers, we find there are three views of them. And what I wanted to do was go over uh, the, the three views of the Founding Fathers on the question of Christianity, 
And then I wanted to look at five of the founders specifically, very quickly, um, and then I try to offer some final considerations. Right? And I, I, I will tell you where I lean, but not yet. The first view is simply called the Christian America or chosen nation thesis. This idea is that God blessed America with a special providence. In fact, George Washington would write of this often, and he would often use the language of a miraculous providence. He would use it of his own life. He would use it in the life of his, not then country, but of his, of his uh, yet his soon-to-be country. He did this, uh, for example, we talk about the French and Indian War. There was a, a moment in the French and Indian War where the, the British were marching under General Braddock on to Pittsburgh. They were met in the middle of the wilderness by the French. They had about equal amount of troops, uh, roughly 1,200 British, roughly 1,000 or so French, and Canadians and Indians. And the French lost 30 soldiers, three officers, and the British lost uh, hundreds of soldiers literally hundreds of soldiers. Fifty-four women were traveling with the British. Four survived. Braddock himself was killed. But here's what happened to Washington in this skirmish in the woods somewhere, uh, if you know where Fort Necessity is, between Fort Necessity and Pittsburgh. Um, His horse, two times his horse was shot out from underneath him, and he had four bullet holes in his outer jacket. And Washington spoke of that as a miraculous providence. So what this view, this Christian America chosen nation thesis does, is see things like that as God sort of superintending in America's founding and giving it a sort of privileged nation status, almost using Old Testament language of Israel, that then through this nation the world would be blessed. And so the thesis goes on to see America becoming the missionary sending center of the 1800s with the student volunteer mission movement and then the more modern missionary movement in the 20th century um, and even to this day, uh, America and missions. Uh, so, So this thesis is more than just looking at the founding. It not only sees a Christian founding with committed Christians as the founders who relied on the Bible to guide them in putting together this political experiment. But it also sees then God using this nation as as his chosen nation through which he blesses. So the thesis tends to be a pretty big thesis that includes both the view of the past, uh, of the event of the revolution, but then also of America's, um, America's whole past. Let's not get into pros and cons yet. Let's just define the three and then we'll... The secular state thesis is the opposite. Uh, This is the book I was telling you about, The Godless Constitution. The idea here is that they especially saw what happened in France. They also saw uh, what happened in Europe as a result of the Reformation and the religious wars, the 30 years war in Europe, etc. They saw all that and so what the architects of the nation did was chart out a purely secular state. 
they uh, would only refer to God because they knew of the religious commitment of the masses, but they made sure to not make anything in there specific about Christianity because they wanted essentially a secular state. And that most of the founders were more sophisticated and educated than to be religious. They couldn't get away with not using some religious language because of all the masses that wanted to hear the religious language. But they themselves, as, as your pastor was giving the introduction to this, they would use that as cover. They weren't committed to any of this. So that's the secular state thesis. A sort of middle-of-the-road thesis wants to say the secular thesis is wrong because the founders very much saw religion as a necessary and vital part of American civil life. And they all pretty much say that. They all see religion as crucial to morality and morality as crucial to a civil society. So they were not irreligious. They were not uh, uh, against religion. They were actually very religious. But then the question comes, how Christian were they? In other words, were they orthodox, not like uh, Greek orthodox, were they orthodox in their theology? Did they subscribe, did they believe in the Bible? Did they submit to the Bible? Did they subscribe to the ancient creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed? What did they think about Christ? What did they specifically think about the Bible? Those types of questions. It's one thing to be religious. It's one thing to even be generically Christian. It's another thing to be a Bible-believing, committed, orthodox Christian. And so when you phrase that question, I think you get two answers. Were they religious? Yes, absolutely. I think they were even religious tilting towards Christianity. But were they Christian? Well, let me run through a few of the founders and we'll see what they have to say. First, Franklin. Uh, let's say Franklin, because you can read the letter and I think that sums it all up. First, we'll do Jefferson. Now, when Jefferson was president, while he was sitting president, he produced what was called the Jefferson Bible. And what he did was he took two New Testaments and he cut and pasted them. And he had to have two because if you cut, and, and he literally cut and pasted. This was like with scissors and paste, not on the computer cut and paste. When you do it with scissors and paste, you need two because you paste the backside down, right? So here he is in his first uh, presidency in the Oval Office, in the, well, it wasn't the Oval Office back then, but in his office in the evening hours, cutting and pasting the New Testament. And guess what's falling to the floor? Right? All of the miracles of Jesus, all of the deity claims, and the resurrection. This is how his Bible ends. This is a copy. I found this in a used bookstore in a nice little slipcase, Jefferson Bible. There they laid Jesus in the tomb, and they rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. That's it. That's how the New Testament ends. No resurrection. Jesus is dead in the grave. Now, in the copy I bought, there was this page from Moody Monthly, 1979 advertising an edition of the Jefferson Bible. Not this one, a different one. And it has in here a quote from a letter. 
It is a document and proof. This is Jefferson writing to his friend Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, Presbyterian minister, medical doctor, lived in Philadelphia. He was the one who, who uh, encouraged bloodletting. And so when Washington died, he was called Dr. Vampire in the press. They blamed him for Washington's death. Jefferson wrote him a letter and he says, it is a document and proof that I am a real Christian. And they quote this in the Moody Monthly piece. But can you have Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus? For Jefferson, Jesus was a good moral teacher. He recommended to his nieces and nephews, and everyone he knew, that they read the New Testament every night before they go to bed. But he thought it was a tainted New Testament. And so that's why he set out to make his own. Free of the miracles, free of the deity claims, free of the resurrection. Had it privately published for his friends and family so that they wouldn't have a tainted Gospels. And we all know Jefferson's role. Then, of course, there's Tom Paine. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt calls Tom Paine a filthy little atheist. I love that. I suspect he was a gentleman, so he likely bathed. And Tom Paine was actually tall, and he wasn't an atheist. But it's still a great line, filthy little atheist. Tom Paine says, I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, the Roman church, the Greek church, the Islamic church, the Protestant church, nor any other church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. So to him, not all religions were right. All religions were wrong. (laughs) So it's kind of an interesting view, right? Uh, The Christian theory of Christ is little else than the idolatry of ancient mythologies. As the people called Christians, they have no evidence that their religion is true. There is no more proof that the Bible is the word of God than that the Quran is the word of God. The fable of Christ and his twelve apostles is a parody on the sun and the twelve signs of the zodiac. And then he speaks of the pretended resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Tom Paine wrote a very important book in the 1780s uh, called The Age of Reason, in which we have passed, we've gone past the age of religion and we are now in the age of reason. Paine was a very important writer. In, in the, he was the one who wrote, uh, these are the times that try men's souls. Do you remember overhearing that line? A series of pamphlets called The Crisis, as, a, as America's commitment to the world was foundering a little bit. He wrote those pamphlets, and it really spurred on the war effort. What it made him was pretty much the most popular writer in America. And when he wrote the book, The Age of Reason, there was a lot of backlash, but there was also a lot of acceptance of that book. This is an interesting statistic, and it blew me away the first time I saw it. Church attendance in America in the 1780s, this is the first decade, I'm sorry, 1790s, the first full decade after America is a, is a republic, is a nation, 1790s. Anybody guess what church attendance was in America in the 1790s? Just want to throw out a number? Yes, a percentage. 50. 70. This is like an auction. 50, 70. I got 80. So what, you know, your pastor should auction those books of mine. I don't know. Less than 10. Single digits. And uh, this is what's interesting. You know, I do every once in a while and say, well, we've got to get back to a Christian America. We've got to get back to our roots and our founding. And I think, well, I'm not so sure you want to go back to the 1790s. 
Not that church attendance is an indicator of you know, someone's relationship with God, but it is an indicator of something. Single digits. And a lot of it was because of people like Paine and the ideas of deism and uh, the ideas of my church is my own mind. Right. So we've got Tom Paine, we've got Jefferson. Uh, John Adams, who's one of my heroes, and uh, I love reading about John Adams. And I also am very much, I love reading about his son, John Quincy Adams. And um, John Quincy Adams was actually much more orthodox in his theology than his father was. And John Quincy Adams, when his dad was president, wrote a letter to his dad saying, uh, your view of Christ to the real thing is as a farthing candle to the sun. Now, farthing candle was a penny candle, cheapest candle, just burn right down, cheap wax. And, and why he was saying that was because John Adams was a deist. He, he did not hold to, he was an Arian, he did not hold to the, to the deity of Christ. And his own son was calling him on it. And of course, John Quincy Adams went on to be president himself. Uh, and then Franklin. Now, I, I copied for you this letter. Ezra Stiles was uh, Jonathan Edwards' grandson. He was president of Yale. He was a good friend of Franklin's. Uh, they, were, they became friends through the Revolutionary War. They remained significant friends. And as Franklin was getting old, and he would soon die after this letter, uh, Stiles wrote him a letter. And what Stiles was actually, I think, witnessing to him and trying to get him to talk about Christ. And he sent him a letter asking him to talk about his views of Christ. And this is what Franklin sends back. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render him is doing good to his other children. So see, there's that belief in God which leads to morality, that the soul of man is immortal, so there will be judgment, there will be punishment and the happiness for the just, punishment for the wicked. These I take to be the fundamental principles of all sound religion, and I regard them as you do in whatever sect I meet with them. As to Jesus of Nazareth, now here's the question, right? Religious, yes. Generically Christian, yes. But what does he think about Christ? And, and Stiles was smart enough to say, this is the question. Right? You've got to answer this question. What do you think about Christ? My opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the systems of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw. But I appreh- apprehend he has received various corrupting changes. And I have, with most of the present dissenters in England, some doubts as to his divinity. Now, Franklin is hedging his bets there. He, he doesn't have doubts about his divinity. He, from early on in his life, he's outright rejected. He wrote a letter one time saying, um, my mother is, is sad because one of her sons is an Arminian and the other is an Arian. And he was the Arian, right? Um, But this is funny. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with it now, when I expect so soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. Franklin always has a sense of humor, right? So he knows he's going to die soon, and he'll find out what the answers are. Uh, I see no harm, however, in its being believed, if that belief has a good consequence, as it probably has of making his doctrines more respected and better observed, especially as I do do not perceive that the Supreme takes it amiss, by distinguishing unbelievers in this government of the world with any particular marks of his displeasure. Um, yeah, I think what he's saying is, is, as long as it's not harmful, beliefs aren't what really... Beliefs, 
Franklin's religion is essentially behavior, not belief. And so as long as a belief isn't going to cause you to have harmful behavior, the belief really doesn't matter. And God himself doesn't care. God cares about behaviors, not beliefs. And so for him, asking theological questions like, is Jesus the God-man? That's a belief that's irrelevant. The question is, am I a moral man? And that's what God honors. That's what God wants to see. So you see what this is going to lead to. Right? It's going to lead to a religion of morality. And then at the bottom he says, um, please don't publish this letter <laughs> in the PS. <laughs> the tricky one is Washington. Uh, and, and I will just, there's the whole spectrum. There is the idea that Washington, one historian called him a lukewarm Episcopalian, which I love that expression, because Episcopalians are sort of lukewarm to begin with. Uh, so lukewarm Episcopalian, that's like really bad. Might as well just say cold. Anyway, that's a joke among friends. Um, to a recent biography of him called Sacred Fire, which was number one on Amazon for weeks, and I don't know if you know the story of this, when Jerry Falwell died of a heart attack in his office, Glenn Beck asked if he could see his office. And they took Glenn Beck into his office. And on Falwell's desk, Glenn Beck noticed a book called Sacred Fire, a book by Peter Lilback, president of Westminster Seminary, on George Washington. And Glenn Beck ordered it on his Blackberry and got the book. And then he invited Pete Lilback on his show, told everybody to go buy this book, and it became number one on Amazon for like three weeks. Right? This 1,400-page biography of George Washington. Well, in that book, he makes him out to be a devout Christian. So you have everywhere from lukewarm Episcopalian to devout Christian. So we'll just say there's a mixed bag of opinion out there. As you put these together, you do begin to see something. You begin to see that I think what Franklin's letter here is pretty typical of a lot of the founders. Very religious. Religious is necessity, uh, necessary for morality. But on the particulars, the particulars of the inerrancy of the Bible or the truthfulness of the Bible or the particulars of Jesus or the particulars on the doctrines of grace, right? the atonement is necessary for salvation. Um, my study into this, I don't see it. And, and most of the fathers. You do see it in some. Uh, John Witherspoon, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, president of, of uh, Princeton, Presbyterian minister, Scottish immigrant, right? The Scots loved to rebel against their king. He had no problem with going after George. Um, but he was a devout, devout Christian, signer of the Declaration of Independence. What his role was, he was late most of the time. To the, he was always riding horseback late. It's, uh, John Adams used to get annoyed by him because he would always come in late on horseback and then he'd ask for everything to be repeated so that he could hear. <laughs> and and uh, while it used to annoy Adams, it used to make Jefferson really happy because what Adams would do is he, he would then say in one sentence what he had just taken four hours to say. <laughs> so Jefferson thought Witherspoon was like the best thing that ever happened to the Continental Congress. And Benjamin Rush, another signer of the Declaration of Independence, medical doctor, but a, a very solid um, Christian. Uh, and um, he advised Jefferson, when Jefferson sent him this Bible, 
and he tells him, this will prove that I'm a real Christian, Rush sends back, don't print this. Don't print this. It, it'll destroy you, your, your, your career, if you print this. Right. And Jefferson decided to just print it pi- privately. But, so there are those, the, the Rushes, the Witherspoons, but, but they're more on the, the second tier of the founders. When you get into that inner circle, it really is essentially Jefferson, Adams, Washington. Um, they're the main architects of, of what America becomes. And when you begin to look at them, again, very religious, but I'm not so sure uh, uh, they were all that orthodox in their Christianity. Let me just throw out some final considerations, and then I'll throw it open. Uh, and, And I guess the main cons, at least in my view, for the secular thesis, the main con is the evidence doesn't bear it out. The evidence just simply does not bear it out that they were... uh, they didn't want religion to be a part of of um, American life. The main con, I think, of the Christian America thesis is, again, I just don't think the evidence bears it out. It does bear it out that they were religious. It does bear it out that they were religious with mainly Christian. But I just don't think the evidence bears it out. And those, to me, are the main cons for each of those views. I don't think there's really a pro to the secular state thesis. Um, so, But anyway, let me just hop in final considerations and then we'll see. One is the connection of religion to morality. I think the founders were right in recognizing that you just can't have morality based on nothing. You just can't have morality based on opinion, uh, opinion polls. What do 51% think about a subject? That there is something that is absolute. There is something that is beyond culture, beyond groups that groups need to submit to because otherwise groups do something. They do what's in their best interest. And what's in their best interest isn't always that which is moral, right? Just read Lord of the Flies and you get a sense of what human nature is capable of and how we need something to hold us in check. So I think the founders were right to recognize that society was on very dangerous ground when it did not have any moorings in in religion. But having said that, I think we also have to be careful, especially as a church, how we think about these things. That fundamentally as a church, what's our task? Right? Our task isn't that we appear before God and say, well, look, we left you a moral society. Right? Our task is that we were faithful in the proclamation of Jesus in the gospel. And so we need clarity for our church's task. And sometimes when we do this church-state thing, that the lines get a little blurred and some of that clarity loses focus. Right? So I think being careful here about how we interpret the founders and then how we use the founders in the present and thinking about America in the future can help us think about the clarity of our task. And then lastly, and this has been impressed upon me, it's God of the nations. You go back to Genesis 17:4, and he calls Abraham, but out of Abraham... It's going to be the nations. And he says it like three or four times in Genesis 17. And then you go to Revelation chapter 22. Uh, and when you get to Revelation chapter 22, we find at verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. 
they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. God is the God of the nations. And certainly God uses, raises up nations for his purpose. And you can see that as you look back over America's history. But we have to be careful, I think, how far we press this chosen nation status. God is the God of the nations. So, just some things for you to consider. We have, I know I went late, I'm sorry, long, so I'm sorry. But uh, I'm glad to take questions or comments. Your pastor preaches long all the time anyway, so you're used to it. Yeah. Where does the mace come in? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Satan. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's not on the tape, is it? Um, yeah, you know, Washington was a mason, of course, and um, it, it was very much a part of that. The, as far, I, don't, I haven't really studied mason Freemasonry a lot, so I've just looked at it from a distance. But it's fascinating that so much of deism, this idea of, a, of God who started things, and cre- that very much resonated with Freemasonry. And that while it has a Christian lingo to it, it's really a deistic Christian lingo, not this Bible's lingo, but the Masons gave Washington his favorite term to refer to God. His favorite term for referring to God was the great, the great or the grand architect. That's how he tended to refer to God. So there was very much a resonance between the Masons and deism. And I don't, it's like a chicken and an egg question. I'm not sure which one there was the cause and which one there was the effect. Well, yeah, that part of it with the levels and the higher you go, more. But it, but fundamentally, it does have some Christian lingo attached to it. But it's more of a deist Christian than a biblical Christian. Yes. 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 I dodged that. How did I dodge? Uh, the question is about some folks thinking of how providence plays a role in American history and that I uh, very artfully dodged that in my talk. I, you know, providence is a, st- is a tricky thing because we have divine, like when God acts in history in the Bible, we have divine revelation. But even there, and I'm going to be careful when I say this because I, I need to make sure you understand me, even there there's some ambiguity in historical events. We're not always left with, you know, uh, David. It's the season when kings go out to battle. Well, should David have been on the battlefield, and that's why he fell to Bathsheba, or was it legitimate for him to be in the palace because the nation was already settled? There's some ambiguity in how we interpret that historical event, and that's an event with divine revelation. Once we step out of biblical history and into post-biblical history, we don't have the benefit of divine revelation interpreting events for us. So was Washington miraculously saved? Did God move that bullet over an inch so it went through his coat and didn't pierce a lung? Um, And we don't have... I, I just want to be careful to say God's hand was in it. Now, it's interesting, I didn't mention this. In the revolutionary era... There were tons of sermons preached that, that were, they would always, 
the Br- British were always the Amalekites or the Philistines. <laughs> so they had no problem interpreting divine providence. God was on their side. You know, the same thing happened in the Civil War. But now God was conflicted. He was on both sides. And both sides claimed him. So I think we have to be very careful about our assumptions and our presumptions. But having said that, does God work in history? He's the God of history. Absolutely. And maybe we can't always make ultimate interpretations, but we can make provisional interpretations. So has America played a role in God's kingdom? I think the answer to that is yes, it has. Um, But can we look at each, you know, a pinpoint and moment and say God did that? He did. He does everything. But, you know, in the way we want to say put his stamp, divine stamp of approval. So I, I guess my answer is I'm a little hesitant at jumping into that because, again, I, I want to hear revelation to interpret events for me. Otherwise, I just want to be careful. So. It's true of our own lives, isn't it? Right? We, we know God's at work in our lives. We can sometimes say, well, this is why he's doing it, but sometimes it's a mystery to us, isn't it? And we, we're not always sure what God's doing. And we know he's doing something. And we know it's going to be for his glory. But we're not always sure what exactly he's doing. No, it's interesting you say that. When you look at this, because, you know, the city upon a hill language has been co-opted again in in modern times. But it's usually co-opted in a time of privilege. If you go back to what Winthrop, and you go back to that sermon, and you should look it up sometimes. It's just called A Model of Christian Charity. Uh, If you Google it, you'll be able to find it. Um, To him, it's, it's never privilege. It's always obligation. You know, and I think there's something to that. I think we, we tend to think of God's blessing upon us as, well, now we can enjoy the fat things of the land when really it's a call for us to holiness, recognizing that we're God's people. Right? But culturally, it doesn't always work itself out that way. It works it out more as largesse and abundance. Um, so, yeah, um, I think it's something to think about because because we 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 tend to have a uh, a um, human economics and not a divine economics, and a human economics always attaches good to prosperity and bad to suffering and want. And that's not always the divine economics. You know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, well, when I hope I haven't stepped on anyone's toes. When I was a kid, I wanted to change my name to George. My dad's name is George, and everybody thought, "Oh, isn't that sweet?" I wanted to change my name, but I actually wanted to change my name to George because I wanted to change it to George Washington. So here I am now. Um, 
dissing the fathers. Uh, so, <sighs> a funny providence, I guess, is all you can all you can say. Well, uh, are, 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 any any other questions? Thank you, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Very interesting. Oh, my my, you're always a great group. Well, let's pray, and uh, then we'll we'll be done. Father God, we thank you for our time together. Uh, we do thank you, and as we as we try to look at these things critically and thoughtfully, we do thank you for this nation that we are part of. We don't take it lightly. We thank you, especially in the season of of Memorial Day and and um, remembrance of D Day. We think of these things. We we think of those folks who um, committed their lives to the ideals of this nation, and we trust that these ideals are are godly and are biblically informed. We also uh, want to be honest, and so we ask that you would help us as we try to sort through all this stuff to balance these things. Give us a graciousness as we interact, and uh, give us a graciousness as we think about the past and as we think about the future as well. We know what you've called us to. Uh, You have called us to love justice and mercy, and so those are good things, and we should applaud those and be a part of those. And you've also called us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to point a world that is in desperate need to a Savior on a cross, the God-man on the cross, who is dying there for us. So help us as we think about these things in the church's task. And above all, we praise you that you are not only the God of this nation, but that you are indeed the God of the nations, and that one from every tongue and tribe and people is right now in your presence, worshiping you, and that someday we will join that chorus too. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.